I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Angelina Stanford and Heidi White. How's it going, Angelina and Heidi? Great. It's going really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I said, there's something different about my introduction. I said that we are on the Close Reads podcast network. I know that felt weird. I know. It feels weird. It. it feels weird. It, yeah. It, I like it, but it feels weird to say it's Close Reads on the Close Reads podcast network. So I got to figure out the best way to make that roll off the tongue in a way that doesn't seem strange. But I say it that way because as of, I guess, this week, we kind of have officially launched the close reads podcast network we've expanded so um starting on monday we're recording our first um episode of the plays the thing uh tim and matt bianco will be taking us through king lear and so that's the first shakespeare play that we're going to do um we also will be launching a a movie podcast um where me and another friend of mine who um some of you well, actually, he'll be new to most of you, so we'll all save introductions for when he's on the show. We're going to be talking about 10 sort of essential movies that everybody should watch, um, and we're going to talk about why they're important and how to watch them and different things like that. But we're also going to be bringing on various uh, film critics who can kind of help place those movies within the sort of larger canon of the last 100 years of movies, of movie history. That sounds so super cool. So we are going to take, we've gotten a lot of questions. You know, I talk about movies on the show sometime and we've had, sometimes we've had questions come up where people say, help me understand. We don't watch movies in my family, but now I feel like we should. So where do we start? So we kind of chose 10 movies that I think are crucial to the evolution of the art form that are sort of crucial to, that are perfect, perfect, um, for dis- for learning how to watch and discuss movies. So part of it, part of the criteria was what are essential movies that everybody should have watched? And then part of it was what are some essential movies that are perfect for talking about movies? So we've selected from various genres, even a couple foreign films, um, various eras. Um, there's going to be a film noir on there. There's going to be... Oh, my um, favorite! There's going to be a silent film on there, a Chaplin film. Um, there's going there's to... A, there's a comedy, an early comedy. Um, there's going to be a Western. You can probably guess which one we chose. Um, um, if you know me, you'll know... You'll recognize a lot of these titles if you've heard me talk about movies before. Heidi, I did not put The Apartment on this first season, so... Come on! <laughs> well, I guess there's always next season. Exactly. So we're, the plan is we're going to do 10 episode seasons. So you get 10 episodes in a row, and then there's just not enough time in my life to do that every week, along with all the other stuff we're doing. So we're going to record um, several of them at a time and then release them over 10 weeks. Um, so probably record four to get started to get some in kind of in the hopper. And then we're going to re- release those over 10 weeks. That um, is so cool. Like, I'm imagining all these like movie viewing parties, like open invitation. <laughs> Anyone can show up in my house with a movie. I will pop I, popcorn. It will be awesome. 
I would love it. Um, and hopefully we can give some talking points. We can give some things for to look for, or you could watch it and then listen. Um, or I, ideally you listen and then you watch it and then you listen again. Um, or, you know, do it however you want. But yeah, we'd love to hear from people about how they're watching. So that's going to be coming out in the next, we'll say month. We're also going to be doing a poem of the day podcast. So we're going to record and share seven to 10 minute, probably, well, probably, honestly, it's probably gonna be like two to 10 minute episodes. Some of the poems will be short, but um, we're going to just kind of go through some of the greatest poems ever. We've heard from a lot of people who said they're going to have their students listen good for morning time. So we're going to try to make it something um, kid friendly, but we're not going to choose dumbed down poems, so to speak. Mm -hmm. We're going to read the great poems and we're just going to do it in a way that's perfect for kids of any age. I mean, I want, you know, they're the kind of poems I would read to my six-year-old, even if he doesn't understand them. Right. Cause they, who, that's not the point. So, um, at least not at, not right away. Right. So, um, we're gonna, we're gonna do, be doing that. And then we're also going to have, um, well, I'll just leave it at that for now. We're going to have a bunch of other stuff happening besides the ones that I'm, I'm describing here. So Amazing. this is the new Close Reads Podcast Network. If you want to, um, we, we've created a website hub for it. So if you can, you can go to closereadspods.com or closereadspodcastnetwork or closereadsnetwork.com. Either of those will work. And wow. there'll be a place where you can um, kind of find easy access to them if you want to listen to them there instead of you know, through the apps or whatever it is, just trying to kind of give, give the place, give the site or the, the network, I guess, a hub for all the things that are going on. You'll be able to find a link to the Patreon page, a link to the, um, the uh, Facebook group, a link to the newsletter. And we might even have um, a little sort of blog thing where every now and then we'll post news and, you know, when we update things on like update reading schedules and stuff like that. I know a lot of people are not on Facebook. So we're trying to give those people who want to participate in the whole network without actually participating in the Facebook group, which we totally understand. We want to give you guys a place to find information as well. So that, again, that's closereadspods.com or closereadsnetwork.com. Um, closereadspods.com is kind of fun to say, but sort of <laughs> annoying to spell. So... <laughs> We went close reads network as well. So I just I think of like space invaders or something when you say pods. Like <laughs> that's where my 80s mind goes. Like, I don't this doesn't sound good. Somebody out there <laughs> has nabbed closereads.com and what? Uh, and they are charged it's like three they want like three thousand bucks for it. So. They're holding it hostage. <laughs> yeah. Guys, we're English teachers. We have no money. <laughs> my theory is it's Heidi. <laughs> yep and i want your money it's me <laughs> yep we'll talk later all right well, <laughs> well it might be a it might I be a one-sided negotiation of my children how about that <laughs> <laughs> fortunately they don't listen to the podcast so this is no fun. i kind of want david that's my price i want those adorable children yeah. oh no <laughs> i will fight you for that you want them when they're five and six oh maybe they're just so full of wonder i love your kids well exactly if we wait too long then they're going to be like cynical 11 year olds exactly you guys have the cynics now so yes, yes. <laughs> i mean my goal is to have cynics by the time they're eight so you know, try to well, it, you're not well on your way you need to do better raise your game film noir you play at home is going to do the trick <laughs> it's true it's true it's true the and the the like um 
the westerns of with like the cynical westerns that are like trying to overthrow and subvert all the classic westerns yeah all right well we um let's get that business out of the so way that parenting podcast is up yeah, next exactly <laughs> exactly but that's not going to be part of this network um we we have lots of other podcast stuff that's going to be um that we're going to be launching besides just close reads podcast network stuff too so be be on the alert for announcements on all kinds of stuff um things related to classroom culture and even some leadership stuff possibly. And if you're running schools or running co-ops, we might have some things for you. Um, there's, we have just a ton of stuff that's coming up. So, um, we definitely appreciate your subscriptions, your comments, um, all that kind of stuff. So if you, um, have not left a comment or a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get a podcast in a while, I'm just going to throw it out there that we would certainly appreciate that because it does help. Um, um, it helps us continue doing this kind of thing. So, um, there's the, there's the plug for that. It's out of the way. Now we can move on to our book. We are starting a new book. We are starting Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety, which neither of you have read before, right? Before this? No, this, this right. is my first Wallace Stegner period. Mm-hmm. Have, have you, so neither of you have read like Angle of Repose or short stories or Big Rock Candy Not Mountain a thing. Or, not okay. a word. No, not a, you know, I don't read much contemporary fiction. So no, he hasn't even been on my radar except for the time I had lunch with Graham and he read Wallace Stegner through the lunch, which was very rude. But now I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, whoa, whoa, hold on. What's hold the on. one with the bird on the cover? That's what he was reading. Um, the Spectator Bird? The Spectator that Bird, yeah. Yes, that was at the literary retreat. You know how we'd all have lunch together? Mm-hmm. I was sitting at the Graham's Cersei, table. The and, yeah, the Cersei, the Cersei Summer Institute. Yeah. And so I was at his table and he was rudely reading through lunch. Okay. So he was <laughs> literally reading and not talking to anybody? That's right. Yeah, he, that sounds about right. It does. That's <laughs> well, Graham is um he's gonna make an appearance here in a little bit because this is a book that I mean, frankly, this is purely a selfish selection. Um, this is a book that I love and that Graham loves and actually has a lot to do with um, our our friendship. So I figured we got to have him on. Um, there is even a direct reference to the, the exact town where we met. So we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But I'm curious, you, Angelina, how do you both have been vocal on the Facebook group about how much you like his writing? Um, and we've talked on the show about how style is a big deal to me, um, when it comes to novels. Um, so I'm curious, I would like to just start there. What, what about, um, the way Wallace Degner writes just right off the bat captured you. Um, and I'm drawing a number, Heidi, you got the, uh, rock, you just won the rock, paper, scissors that happened in my head. So you get to go first. (laughs) Wow. I'd like an instant replay on that, please. <laughs> you had a rock. She had the paper. Nice. Uh, yes, I I love this book. It caught me by surprise, to be honest. Uh, like Angelina, I, I do tend to read. You expected me to have bad taste? No, I did not <laughs> expect that at all. That's why I was excited to read it. Actually, you're the second person to have recommended this novel. Uh, my good friend Emily Hill also has recommended. She read this recently. Oh, yeah, okay. And she recommended, she told me before it was even coming up on Close Reach, she said, you've got to read Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. It's, you know, this tells the story of this couple friendship. And I, I've never read a book like this before. 
so I already was predisposed to like it. And then of course, with your ravings, David, because you are kind of hard to please. So, uh, (laughs) which I like that about you. I know that when you recommend something, it's going to be great. So I was already predisposed to like it, but did catch me by surprise. uh, These long flowing sentences uh, with just beautifully structured uh, scenes. I I loved all of it. I've only had that experience. I've also had that experience recently with the book Gentleman in Moscow. And I was, I read it and I just fell in love with the writing. And, and this was the same. It was just so beautifully unexpected to me. I knew the story was going to be good, but the writing caught me. Hmm. So the, you, that's interesting that you know, the long, um, yes, flowing sentences, because oftentimes, I don't know, long flowing sentences can come across as sort of ostentatious or unreadable or Faulknerian. <laughs> right, right. Yes. They were not like that at all. They were not complex or, you know, the, sen- the long sentences are not a labyrinth like they are with Faulkner. They're yeah. just descriptive. And he hmm. uses um, a lot of alliteration, but in a, in a, just a very simple way that uh, I, I noticed it because I started underlining and mm. it just took so long to get to a period. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. But yeah. you don't notice that when you're reading it, they just come across to love. I'm trying to find one. Um, okay. Oh. I have one on okay. page six it says this sentence. I wonder if I have ever felt more alive, more competent in my mind and more at ease with myself and my world than I feel for a few minutes on the shoulder of that known hill while I watch the sun climb powerfully and confidently and see below me the unchanged village, the lake like a pool of mercury, the varying greens of hay fields and meadows and sugarbush and black spruce woods, all of it lifting and warming as the stretched shadows shorten. Mm. That little alliteration at the end, that was a long sentence, but it was it doesn't also feel simple. Like it. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. I was thinking, um, and Angelina, I'll get to you in one second. I just want to make a comment about this. There's, there's this, um, I was thinking a lot while I was reading this time, something that I've never thought before that like we describe good prose often as poetic, right? Like it reads Mm -hmm. like poetry sometimes. And I got to thinking about, um, Wendell Berry's comments in his book on William Carlos Williams poetry. And I've said this before on a couple of different places. I love that book. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's a great book. Everyone should read that. But he talks about how poetry, one of the things that defines it is the end of the line, Mm. right? So in prose, in theory, if it weren't for the fact that you need to um, sort of, you need it for space issues, like just the physical tangible issues that, that printing on paper impacts, you could just go on forever, right? Like there's no reason to go on to the next line, but in poetry, what you're doing is you are actively deciding to go onto the next line. And thus the line is one of the defining characteristics of, of, of verse. Um, and I was, I was thinking a lot about how a lot of those sentences in here you could see you could you could take it and turn it into a poem like you could you could you could kind of carefully choose where you're going to break your lines and you and the they're there they read like true poetry not in the sense that they're that they kind of flow but that there is a cadence to them that is consistent with the way lines break in poems does that make sense yeah it makes total sense a lot of it has to do with how it sounds to my ear as i'm Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase Christine Perrin. Her her talk she gave on poetry this summer at the national conference, and, and everyone should listen to that. It was so it was so good. But she said something that I just now available on Institute.com. There you go. I like there was one of those moments where I wanted to jump up and say, Stop the talk. Can we just contemplate that one thing that you just said <laughs> for like a week? You know, but I I behaved, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> um, and so just to paraphrase what she said, she said a line of poetry is the perfect amount of time in that it holds you in an eternal present. And so you are no longer thinking about the line before it and you are not yet anticipating the line to come. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. yeah, I'm going to think about that. Yeah. Right. I feel like that also has something to do with the way that Wallace Stegner writes. Hmm. Do you, yeah. Okay. So, there, when you think about style in, in prose, I mean, what are some of the ways we describe someone as a great stylist? I mean, some people you'll you'll talk about when we just when we talk about Hemingway. There's certainly people who dislike his style, but you, it's kind of described as sort of a um, punchy. Like there's a mm-hmm. people describe style as like masculine or um, you know. Uh, uh, how, you know, I'm just trying to think of all the different ways that people describe style. Well, they talk about the elements of styles. They talk about a lot, a lot about rhetorical devices, metaphors and similes, descriptive imagery and stuff like that. For me, I would say 100% it has to do with the rhythm of it more than anything. I think that's probably why I love poetry so much. Um, and so I will often find myself saying there's a musical quality to what I'm reading. That That's like a big deal to me. I, I like to feel like it's a song. And I actually don't think that's a preference I think that that is something inherent in the in good language itself because the original poems were sung. Homer sang, you know, these, these the bards sang. There is something about singing the story. Yeah, yeah. Something we're missing in in modern storytelling. But I get most excited when when stories feel like a song. Yeah, I think good prose. I don't know, I don't know if Heidi, if you feel this way. Good prose is often there's something like if you're if you are sensitive to it, it's sort of an instinctive response a lot of the time. Very yes. rarely do we sit there and break down the sentences and say, boy, that was a well-structured sentence. I think that this guy's a great prose, great, great at writing prose. I mean, we do that sometimes and we do that, but it's not the first thing that we do. The right. first thing is right. it's often very instinctive. By the way, you mentioned um, uh, the epics, Angelina. And um, I wrote like three or four times while reading, I wrote, this reads like Homer. Hmm. Um, ah. pretty often even that passage that Heidi just read on page six yeah. the way that it ends it, it there's like this sort of um Homeric epic simile thing to it um like it feels like he's just somebody who has at least in, been um influenced by reading classic uh classic Greek and Roman li- literature that's so funny that you say that because I marked several in fact I think I think it was you David that I texted one simile this week said this is just bravo like this this right here is just so perfectly captured but it's long like you said it's epic the epic similes are very long uh so and i think it's another thing that struck me of what angelina said you angelina you post you you pointed out the musical quality and i do tend to be more auditory honestly but a lot of what I notice in style is how it impacts me visually inside my head, whether I can see what is being described. Uh, and, and that sentence I read on page six, I just see it like the lake, like a pool of mercury. What a 
unbelievable, believably descriptive, plus the word mercury ties to the relationship and, you know, all these different things stylistically, whether how it sounds and then how we visualize it, especially in fiction and poetry. Here's the text, the line that you sent me. She was a lady with gimlety brown eyes and, a, and the grim smile of a headmistress who has seen all sorts of naughtiness and still loves children or swears she does. I love it. That's hey, perfect. So, so we have a guest that I need to bring on here. Graham, welcome. Oh, of course he comes home and it's my turn to talk. Okay, we'll be quiet now. <laughs> we'll give you a second. Hello. <laughs> so There's my rude lunch partner as we... <laughs> We were. She was just describing how at the Summer Institute a couple of years ago, Uh-oh. you sat at lunch and just read the Spectator Bird instead of talking. Oh yeah, that that's right. <laughs> I said that sounds that about right. That was my first introduction to Wallace Stegman. See, now at the time I thought you're rude. Now I'm like, oh, I get that. Totally right choice. Good move. <laughs> right. I picked the right dinner guest. He's way more interesting than me. So just carry on. <laughs> so you've read this what four five times? Four or five. Four or five. Mm-hmm. You've lost count. This is my favorite novel. Oh, wow. And usually when I tell people that, um, I get one or two reactions. It's usually not wow, although (laughs) the the timber in your voice is, uh, it could be interpreted different ways, I guess. That was not a backhanded condemnation. Oh, wow. I usually usually get... um, Look at your terrible taste. (laughs) Bless your heart. (laughs) That's right. I get either um, confusion, bewilderment, um, or glaze. Or, yeah, people that obviously feel sorry for me, <laughs> um, and I and I get it. Um, Do you remember or, when you or, first read it? Uh, Is that when we were living together? No, after that. After that, because you gave me a copy. Um, it's like a wedding present at, at your wedding, like a, a groomsman present. Oh. I was going to say, I was giving you presents at my wedding. You were, yeah. <laughs> I must have been reading the, Hob- the Lord of the Rings. But it's, it's, either from people, it's either from people who haven't read Stegner and they give me kind of a blank look, um, which usually I can read into like, oh, I don't know this author, so um, he's obviously not part of the tradition. So uh, this guy has got some poor taste. <laughs> or it's from people who, you know, Pride and Prejudice or uh, Crime and Punishment is obviously the correct choice. And <laughs> I've deviated <laughs> from the letter of the law. And I get it. But I think a lot of it has to do with um, the conflation of best novel and favorite novel. Right. Oh, absolutely. This is, this is my favorite novel. So, okay. so I wanted to come on and make sure you're giving the right opinions. <laughs> well, so far we've just talked about how awful he is and we're planning a book burning bonfire this weekend. So. Yeah. That's one way of interpreting what just happened. <laughs> so, um, so, okay. It's your favorite novel. Yeah. Can you give us, can you give us three reasons why? Well, uh, I don't have any friends and nobody likes me. So I like to read <laughs> Now you have book friends. Oh, I like to read about deep friendship and I'm just welcome to close reads therapy. Join right in. Yeah, I like to imagine what friendship could be. (laughs) If only you had a close couple friend that you lived life with. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, actually, I don't think I'm going to answer that question. Wow. You're not going to answer the question about why it's your favorite? No. 
Not not now, at least. Because you don't want to make <laughs> oh, anyone... Oh, no spoilers! You don't want to spoil it? I don't want to spoil it, and I just don't think it's that interesting for me to uh, to state those reasons right now. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, you don't need me to just to tell you why I think this book is good. I think we'll once you go through it, um, I don't know, people, form your own opinion, people. Well, I... W- <laughs> Well, I was saying, why? <laughs> wow! This when does this show ever trade in letting people have their own opinions? Um, uh, so I was telling Heidi and Angelina that we were just talking before the show, and I told you how far we'd read, and, and I, you were like, knew exactly, exactly what happened in that chapter. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you find because I've read it? <laughs> right <laughs> but I've read a lot of books. I couldn't tell I've you exactly what happened somewhere in while ignoring people. But... <laughs> So, um, so there's a section that's the beginning of chapter two that it talks about Dubuque. Yep. And Dubuque is the town where Graham and I, where Graham lived and I was everybody, know, everybody knows where that is. Yeah. Everybody knows it's that is, that's the funny thing about it. So it says rain was falling when we reached the Mississippi going through Dubuque. We bumped along brick streets between shabby high porched steep gabled houses with brick church spires poking up from among them and down a long cathedral aisle of elms toward the river. To my Western eyes, it was another country as alien as Northern Europe. Um, Dubuque is where we lived. It's like a tiny town of college, like Catholic colleges. A tiny town of Catholic colleges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and a tiny town of tiny Catholic colleges and one very tiny evangelical Bible college. Yeah. Um, but did you, did that have anything to do with like, it felt familiar? Uh yeah, so Steg- Stegner writes primarily about the West, um, but he was born in Iowa. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've covered any of this. No, we, no. nothing, no. nothing. Okay, so he was born in Iowa and lived quite a few places, um, including <laughs> yeah. middle of nowhere, Canada, California, Montana. But the majority of his writing is about the West, both his fiction and nonfiction, and this one kind of breaks the mold a little bit. Um, he writes about the Midwest and then it's also, and then another place. <laughs> I don't know if they've gone there. No, they haven't. Okay. So I don't know. This is, this is one of those books in a lot of ways. It's more, it's more, it's less about the place than it is about like the other books are very much rooted in, in a place. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, well, I mean, definitely we're seeing in the first four chapters an East West tension. Yeah. I don't know that, if that's going to loom large I, in the book. He, he, so far. he, he writes a lot about, um, like Barry, who, who was his teacher, who, who he taught at Stanford. Stegner taught Barry at Stanford, just to clarify that. Like Barry, a lot of his work is kind of, shall I say, in defense of a place. So for him, he was like a voice of the, the American West, like one of the preeminent voices of the American West. Just like Barry is one of the preeminent voices of the South or the Mid-South or depending on which part of the South you're from, you don't think Kentucky's in the South. But, um, <laughs> but you know, he, he was writing in defense of and in, on behalf of a place. And a lot of Segner's work is similar in that way. And that was one of his stated goals. But in this, there is a placelessness mm-hmm. to there's a rooted there's a lack of rooted rootedness going on and so a lot of what's happening is that the tension between um lack of roots but then the way friendship can create roots so that i think that's yeah and um have they gotten have we read as far as um 
where uh, Larry, Larry and uh, oh, now I can't remember her name. Sally. 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 Yeah, his wife. Yeah. Sally. Um, have, have they talked about their parents at all? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that so that's become apparent that they are kind of uprooted. Um, yeah, yes. I think I think there's a lot of a lot of truth to that. Um, I, and Heidi and Angelina, this is your first time reading it. Yes. Yes. Any, Any Stegner, Stegner at, at all? all. <laughs> we are like your backup Jinx. voice right now. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. You're the Diana Ross, and we are supreme and right behind you. And you've and you've already. Uh, formed an opinion and stated it on a podcast well i've read half the book I, you interrupted point. my turn to state an opinion so i'm go. opinionless at the moment no go for it oh, i thought you, you you had said to, I, we were asking about style and yeah. so we were saying what i thought you'd answered that because you were talking about the epic poetry thing so go ahead say what you were gonna say oh no well, no, we'll let david no no it's fine i mean we'll let graham finish i don't know i have nothing else to say i, I wanna, gave him a chance to talk i want to listen <laughs> Well, I I uh, I also was taken by the style, um, and I'm having a hard time naming it because it feels familiar and yet different at the same time. Does so it, it does it remind you of anyone else? Well, it reminds me of Barry, but not right. Like um, there's a difference in tone. I feel it feels lighter than Barry. If that makes Are sense. Are you looking for an answer there, Graham? I'm curious because this <laughs> is, this is a question I ask myself a lot. So I'm curious. I have an answer for this, but go uh, ahead. And you know, he it. does. He has those long sentences. It is that rhythmic musical quality, but it doesn't feel like, like I always talk about Barry is like, I feel hypnotized by him. Like he's mm-hmm. putting me under his spell. I don't feel that way about Wallace Stegner, but that's not a criticism. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's doing something different with, he's just playing a different melody. Yes. That's good. And it's, it's it. lighter. Like that. He has a lighter touch than Barry. You mean uh, a lighter tone. Like, like it's less um Barry's work is pervaded with that sense of loss, right? Um almost a melancholy. Hmm. Like in Jaber Crow, there's just a beautiful sadness. Do you think so I was thinking about how chapter one though there's a there's a pretty deep strain of melancholy happening in chapter one, and then once we get into their their younger years, in a lot of ways that's sort of uh, fades. So I'm, I'm one. Do you do you did you catch that too, or did you not find the first chapter melancholic? Um, I didn't find it melancholic, but I, I mean, I was. If if any of the um, Patreon sponsors have listened to the talk I gave last year in Austin called "Remembering Who We Are: How Stories Save Your Life," you'll know why I got so excited with the first two paragraphs. I mean, I was instantly excited because in the first two paragraphs he connects um, waking and sleeping remembering and forgetting, seeing and blindness, which is that my talk, Remembering Who You Are, is all about that motif and how it goes through. So I was very excited that that was going to be the motif. And especially, and so it makes sense then that the story is told in flashback because it's about memory and time and the passing of time. And apparently it's going to be about love and friendship over time. Um, So it didn't feel like the melancholy of time passing and loss, more like he was going to reflect over time passing and the gain that it meant. So this is a good time as any, if you're okay with it, mm-hmm. to transition to a question that I had because the first the first sentence, well, two sentences, floating upward through a confusion of dreams and memory, curving like a trout through the rings of previous risings, I surface. My eyes open, I am awake. Um, then there's the detail about the cataract sufferers, um, 
which I'll read that too, actually. Cataract sufferers must see like this when the bandages are removed after the operation. Every detail is sharp as if seen for the first time, yet familiar too, known from before the time of blindness, the remembered and the seen coalescing as in a stereoscope. Um, I mean, that is almost my talk in a nutshell. <laughs> so I'm curious, though, what do you guys make? I, I think the, the, there's a kind of an outlier little bit of that, and it's the trout bit. Yes. So I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out why he specifically calls to mind mm. the idea of floating upward, curving like a trout through the rings. I mean, there's a lot of metaphors he could have chosen for, you know, memory, for the passing of time, for looking back, I, for reflecting. Uh, no tra did, are trout the one that go upstream? Don't they, fl no, so they, they swim against salmon. the current? That's salmon? Yeah. Okay, I know nothing about fishing. So what, what's a trout then? Like you want to, I'm um, like scientifically. Well, like if it's a metaphor, what do trout do? What's their thing? Well, that's, they, that's they what I'm asking. They die, they go upstream, they jump off a cliff. They're like, delicious. what's a trout? It's a freshwater fish, often found in the mountains. Um, I'm just showing based on the, there's something called a rainbow trout. The rainbow trout is delicious. <laughs> They're often yeah. in lakes. So if he, okay, okay. If, I don't have the book in front of me, but a few pages onward from there, he uh, talks about looking at a glass in the room. Do you guys remember that? Mm -hmm. Yes. And how it refracts the rainbow or prism uh, across the wall, and he puts his hand into it and blocks it and then takes yes. it away. Um, so I, that would be some really deep symbolism if he's referencing a trout uh, as a as a symbol of something How to do so? keep going. of like refracted light, but I don't know. I can't keep going. I, <laughs> I feel like I need to Google trout right now and read a bunch of articles on trout. Well, I know I, nothing. I think the, huh. um, I think I have something. Go oh. for it. I did Google. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I don't really, so, well, okay. I mean, this is pure speculation here, but there's apparently a story by someone named Montague um, called the trout. I don't, the problem is I don't know. I don't, this is, this is going to be extremely riveting, but um, it is many of the images that he employs in the story. It says here can be applied to the condition of the artist struggling to capture the inspiration for their work. Hmm. The process by which an artist envisions a final product and the movement towards can be resonant in the images within it's in this poem. Oh, I guess okay, it's a poem. So maybe he's referencing, um, maybe it's a direct reference to another work. In this case, um, maybe. I don't know. Pure speculation. Well, let here. me let me read that um, section that Graham referenced. It's on page eight. I'm sitting with my back to the window. On the bed table is a tumbler of water that I set there for Sally last night. The sun, coming in flat, knocks a prismatic oval out of the tumbler and lays it on the ceiling. I reach out my foot and kick the table. The rainbow image quivers. I lift a hand and block the beam of sun from the glass. The rainbow goes out. So Sally responds to this. She says, Sally's been watching me frowning. What are you telling me? It's all over? Except I get tired of accepting. I'm tired of hearing that the Lord shapes the back to the burden. Who said that? 
And then it goes on. So obviously there is an image of loss there yes. to Sally, right? And what we don't know what yet, we don't know what is being lost. We don't know what is endangered. We don't know what the, the image that we, we just don't know yet. So maybe that does connect to the trout. Well, if the trout is a reference to this poem, which is a metaphor for the artistic struggle, then right. I also think that makes a lot of sense. So he's saying, if he's coming up like a trout, then he's struggling, right? And this is the story he's about to tell. And he is trying to put together the time and the memories and see things and be awake about the past. I could buy that argument. Like this is his own struggle to make sense of everything. So it's just such a, it's such a distinct choice by Stegner. Right. Like it does feel like it's not part of the rest of what he's doing there. Um, even like there's not, it's so, it, it, it's just so specific hmm. in a way that like even some of his other metaphors are um, like more vague. You're talking about sense. the fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Will like, it come specific- back? Will we see this again? Because sometimes the book will interpret the metaphor for you. I don't remember. Graham, does it come back? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there's a lot of water imagery going on. Well, that makes um, sense. So this could be the first of many. Yeah, there's there's much water to be come across. Well, that's what I thought. This idea of surfacing was probably going to come back. Right. Well, in the circular nature of time, yeah. on the next page, if you could forget mortality, and that used to be easier here than in most places, you could really believe that time is circular and yeah, not but- linear and progressive as our culture is bent on proving. So I, when I read that sentence on the very next, on page four, mm-hmm, I thought mm-hmm. of that image, right? Of the rising up through of time the and, specifically and breaking coming through, through the surface, right? And being in a summer home, which is an image of circular time, right? It's a place you come back to that stays the same and then you leave and then you come back to yes. that. So that yeah, idea that is very pervasive in this first chapter. One of the things I think that he does structurally that is, I, th- I think, speaks to what you're talking about here is how chapter one is in the present tense. Yes. And that's exactly. very, even the way he does that is very striking. And so that plays with your sense of time in the story. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's, it's certainly common, you know, to have a sort of prologue of sorts, but the way he uses the present tense, um, the way he even uses very, very simple B verbs you know, present tense, simple verbs are, it's sort of striking. Um, Like, I am awake. Yeah, exactly. A lot Uh, of ands and I, yes. Yeah. Which creates a very different rhythm from what comes in the later chapters. Right, exactly. So when you get to chapter two, it feels like you're start. it's something fresh. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were just reading chapter one, I think it would be hard to, as a writer, sustain that sort of writing, but also it'd be hard to, maybe read an entire book uh, with, with the same sort of writing that's in chapter one. But it's interesting, right? Because there is a difference in the way we perceive the present and in the way we perceive the past. So it makes mm-hmm. sense that it yep. feels different to us. Like when you, when he's reflecting and putting back, you know, what 50 years of time or whatever it is, um, you put that in an order in your mind. You make sense of it all. It feels like something un- is unfolding. Whereas, you know, in the first chapter, we, when, when you're in the present, you, you don't know what's about to happen next. 
It's only in retrospect that you begin to see, oh, this led to that. And this was significant. Go back to that circle thing. I was just looking at something. you saying. I mean, it talks about the prismatic oval of the tumbler. Right. But then it also talks about a rainbow and a rainbow is a semicircle. Hmm. Right. I mean, not, maybe not technically. I'm sure some mathematician out there who's really into being super literal about geometry will say that I'm wrong about that, but super literal about geometry. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, geometry to all the mathematicians out there. Geometry is the literal expression of algebra, right? Um, let's, I don't know. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm sure that's true. Have they, have they gone to the picnic yet? Yes. Right. After no, they went to the they no, just gone in to the s- first chapter, they're going to go to a picnic, but he starts telling the story. No, sorry, not that one. Never oh. mind, there's no other picnics. There's Stop, no, 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 they go to the dinner party. That's I think where we end. There's two dinner yeah. parties, they end at the dinner party. Did we get the to the part where Dorothy party. throws water on the witch and she melts? Did that happen yet? <laughs> <laughs> nope, <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. Thank you. <laughs> Do you guys have a favorite character yet, or is it too that's early? That's on my list of questions, so that's a good question, Graham. <laughs> well, somebody answer it. <laughs> Heidi, you go first. Is there, are, you, are you completely taken by charity the way you're obviously supposed to be, or is there something about um, Sally or Larry or Sid that makes them just stand out to you in particular? Oh, I, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I, because here's why I have a very personal reaction to this book because we have a very close couple friend that we are very, very close to. Right. So we keep talking about, we had this long conversation, the four of us last night, these friends are living with us right now. Uh, and they, they're between how they just sold their home. They're looking for a new one. So they're staying with us for a while. And so we sat up and taught red quotes and talked about this book. And I said, I am having a very hard time entering this book in a literary sense because I'm taking it very personally (laughs) and because I've never read a book like this before. And so none of the characters are like us, but the culture of the friendship is. And I do think there's a sense of pervasive doom throughout this book. I am expecting it to blow up. So because it's so, it's so ideal. No, because of various, yeah, I, you all know this, I, my master's is in counseling. So I do tend to read very psychologically. So I'm looking at these things and these people and I'm expecting them to converge at some point and I'm dreading it. Oh, the, like the, the characteristics of these people yes, and like what would happen if, if they get mixed in, you know, they'll explode if they get mixed together. In the, right. In, in I, the I right see these things, right. I see these things. And I think if I was writing this book, here's how I would play this out in this character again mm-hmm. with this, the things like that. So, and I haven't gotten to the end yet. So I, I don't have a favorite character right now, but I have a very deep attachment to the relationship itself as a character. If that makes sense. Like the friendship is like a character to me that I'm rooting for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so that is, so I'm, I'm looking at the four of them and I, there's things I love about each of them already or struggle with or think, Oh, you better watch it. 
charity or, you know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so that is, but no, I don't, I don't like one more than the other yet. Angelina, what about you? Um, no, I'm, I'm trying to think that's sometimes in books that happens more often than not, it does not happen. Like I don't, that you it's, would gravitate towards un- Well, it's very uncommon when I talk about books that I will talk about the characters. That's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. That's not usually what gets me excited about a book. It's overall patterns and structures and motifs and the world. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I yeah. like the world of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. interested to see the development of this friendship. And I, and I think that I'm going to learn something about friendship in this book that I do not know. I, it's not personal to me at all. It could not be more foreign. Um, so I'll have a very different experience, but I'm, I'm excited and open uh, to the experience. Um, and, and I do see, I, well, I guess we'll find out. I don't have a sense of impending doom. Um, I think that we're going to see some people who struggle to learn how to love each other in friendship over a long period of time. And I expect to see some failures and setbacks, but I think overall it's going to be the story of how people have learned to love each other. Hmm. That's, that's my guess. Um, Graham, do you have a character well, that's let, the right answer? <laughs> yeah, let me just say, those were clever, beautiful dodges, but <laughs> dodges nonetheless. <laughs> that's uh, what like discussing is. I like the elitist, uh, um, offended couple that stormed out of the party. That's who I relate to. You want to know? <laughs> yeah. My husband there speaks Greek, too. <laughs> I loved that whole scene. That was a masterful scene. Uh, it needs to be a, like a short film. Well, out of, out, agree. of, out of the main four, I think you can immediately eliminate Larry um, just because he's the, the voice. And, I, and I, I just think automatically he, as a character, he, you, I don't know. He's uh, just he, I have strong feelings well, about what you're saying well, right now. No, <laughs> I, know, I feel the opposite. Don't we learn to, don't we always identify with the narrator? Yeah, sure. Whatever. So he, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but he's describing the other three, right? And so, yes, if you'd want to, yeah, to it's, take it's, a big step back and it's an exercise. It's certainly an exercise in perspective. That's one thing we have to remember. Um, but I think uh, Sid is probably my favorite character, and I don't want to go into too much about it. Well, we've barely seen him in the first four chapters, so right? So this is pre- maybe premature. We should we should talk about this on the last episode. I mean, we've seen him as a mixologist so far. That's it. <laughs> Not a poor one. <laughs> a so poor one. Yeah. One of the things I think that's really interesting in the way he reveals character is he reveals it in the way that it's true to, re- well, it's true. This is true to real life. He reveals it in bits and pieces. So people are different mm-hmm. people in different settings. And I liked so, that. I like the idea of seeing a uh, party Sid versus yeah, cool he, Sid. You're, you're absolutely right. That's, that's how he does it. And, and I, I don't have the book in front of me. I apologize. I, it's, I think well, it's, technically it's in front of you. You're just not looking at it. Well, that's not my copy. So. Um, there, there's a point maybe in the first chapter. No, I think it is in the first chapter where he basically lists the attributes of each person mm. mm-hmm. and, and, and their um, virtues. Mm-hmm. And then he just goes on. And then the rest of the book plays those things out in, in different ways. But I thought that was really interesting. He's like, charity is like this and this and this, and I am like this and this and this. And, and then he just goes on. Um, yeah. See if you can find I, it. I might be able to find it too. 
without having a book. Um, Let's stop for another five minutes. <laughs> uh, well, while you look, I will say that I, I do. I like Larry. I I, I feel like um, there's an honesty in his assessment of himself. Yep. The way I've that got- he can see his own vulnerability, how desperate he is for approval and to be thought well of. And that he even says, I don't know if I liked them or if I just liked that they liked me. Like that was a very honest thing to say. I'm going to make a bold statement here that is in keeping with the way that I like to make sweeping generalizations with other things that I don't know anything about. (laughs) I think that Larry is one of the greatest first person narrators in literature history. Yeah, sure. I like that. But is he the greatest character in the book? Well, okay. So, and I just said greatest, I should have said favorite. (laughs) Um, okay, so what I think is really brilliant about what Stegner is doing um, is that he is revealing so much about Larry, the person, by the way he says things and by the way yes. he reveals things. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even, I, I wouldn't even say that Larry's my favorite character in the book. Um, for me, it's, it might be Sally, actually. But, um, and we have to talk about that more as we get to know them more. Um, it's easy for Graham and I to talk about this when we've finished the book multiple no, times. No, I feel like I don't know so, them yet. Yeah, and so that it is kind of, we'll talk about that. I think it's a question that we can put a pin in and come back to. But I think it's worth talking about the way he reveals who Larry is through the way that Larry talks about things. Like Larry is both self-aware and confessional. And that tells us a lot about who he is as a person. Um, and Angelina, you just kind of spoke to that, that he's very, like, I don't know, self-deprecating be the be the word did you find it yeah i found it um but he's also like the way he sees the world um as an as a narrator the the way he sees the 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 way his imagination sees things um is is so informative as a um in terms of how we can understand the character um he's got such a unique voice like such a a um like pure voice in a way um like and i'm by pure i mean it's sort of it it's so consistently himself if that, does that make yes sense? no that does make sense i feel that that's true okay go ahead graham's got this this thing he wants to read uh, so it is it's at the end of chapter one um he's talking about how they're going to leave a mark on the world he's, he's yes reminiscing yeah about their potential so he says we were uh sorry uh we were young and earnest we never kidded ourselves that we had the political gifts to reorder society or ensure social justice. Beyond a basic minimum, money was not a goal we, we respected. Some of us suspected that money wasn't even a good, wasn't even very good for people. Hence, charities leaning towards austerity and the simple life. But we all hoped, in whatever way our capacities permitted, to define and illustrate the worthy life. With me, it was always to be done in words. Sid too though with less confidence. With Sally, it was with sympathy, human understanding, a tenderness towards human cussedness or frailty. And with charity, it was organization, order, action, assistance to the uncertain, and direction to the wavering. Yeah, it is very interesting how he just sort of tells us. So like in the first chapter, he kind of tells us what the what the sort of like central conflict is going to be. And he tells us who is 
types are, right? Right. He, none, none of the characters are the same. Everybody kind of has their own sort of role to play. It's almost like at the beginning of a play where you're like, this is what this guy does. And these are the relationships between these people. And you're just kind of telling everyone out at the beginning what the role of that character is and what to expect of them. It's in some ways, some people would say that's very poor. It's the telling, not showing, right? Well, this um, would explain why when the Barry rejects the telling showing dichotomy, if this was his teacher, I also reject that. We've talked about that on previous podcasts. I don't buy that at all. Well, okay. So Heidi, do you think that, um, well, I mean, why do you think he does that? Like, why do you think he just tells us sort of the, uh, the roster of people and what they're like? He doesn't allow, he doesn't like to play it out. Sure. I think some of it is formal, right? He's remembering that's the, that's, that's setting the stage for the rest of the novel. This is the thing that he's remembering. He's remembering these people and who they were, including himself, uh, and honoring them in his memory and also trying to make sense of either the circular or the linear nature of time that has, as he said, made its mark on them when they thought they were going to make their mark on it. Right. So, um, I do see an undercurrent of grief in this description, um, as well as just a pure honoring. So I think some of it is formal and technical uh, for the sake of the writing and for the sake of doing justice to this first chapter and what he is remembering. And then I think in terms of the themes, it does make us predisposed to like these people that we're about to meet in his memory. And I think that's important. So I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think I'm glad he did it. I've been thinking a lot about whether not, not that he's like an unreliable narrator, but like Mm -hmm. looking for clues that he might be uh, self-aware enough to realize that sometimes your memory fails you. Yes. I've I've been looking for clues to see, and we're not far enough along really to, for me to have found much, but to see if there's spots where he is kind of like, unreliable narrator no i'm not saying he's an unreliable narrator i'm trying trying to say i'm not saying it's that but there is a degree to is he is he the character the narrator self-aware enough at times to realize that your that your own memories can sometimes fail you well memory is definitely a motif of the book so that's certainly part of it right how we remember things right well and it tells us as you said david earlier he does reveal himself larry morgan reveals himself through the through how he remembers. And some of that is this predisposition to charity. I know that's the name of one of the characters, but it's also uh, the way he views these relationships is through the eyes of affection. And, uh, and he remembers the virtues, as you said, Graham. That's the thing he wants us to know about these people. There's a, there's a thing that he does as a narrator, and this is where I think the character of Larry is really drawn out. He, he'll pause from what he's telling you and he'll have these long reflections often built around some kind of a metaphor about yeah. something, um, something really simple. So on page 32, this is where I think the voice of Larry Morgan really kicks in the high gear in this, this section here. It's when they're arriving at the party and they answer the doorbell, right? <coughs> and in it, <coughs> excuse me, in his memories, all of a sudden he sort of, breaks off. He's no longer telling the story. He breaks off into this little reflection of a doorbell. There is nothing like a doorbell to precipitate the potential into the kinetic. 
When you stand outside a door and push the button, something has to happen. Someone must respond. Whatever is inside must be revealed. Questions will be answered. Uncertainties or mysteries dispelled. A situation will be started on its way through unknown complications to an unpredictable conclusion. The answer to your summons may be a rush of tearful welcome, a suspicious eye at the crack of the door, a shot through the hardwood, anything. Any pushing of any doorbell button is as rich in dramatic possibility as that seen in Chekhov when just as... Um, Zemstvo's doctor's only child dies of diphtheria and the doctor's wife drops to her knees beside the bed and the doctor, smelling of uh, carbolic, takes an uncertain step backward. The bell sounds sharply in the hall. I suppose this bell sounded, sounded in the hall, but no dazed and haggard doctor answered the door. This door was yanked open, exposing the brilliantly lighted interior, and in the doorway stood who? Theseus and Ariadne, Troilus and Cressida, Ruslan and Leodmila. I don't know who that is. Um, Russian anyway, fairy tale. Yeah. Um, I, I've got thoughts. So I just couldn't place what fairy tale it was, but um, th- luckily we have you on the show. So, um, <laughs> but, but like, he's got the, the drama, the, the action of the story is happening. And all of a sudden he rings the doorbell and he goes on this mini reflection of doorbells and like the idea of potential into kinetic energy and all this stuff about how people interact with each other. And it's the way he sees the world that is, right. that is, so rich and it's one of the things that makes this a sort of fascinating story well is larry is he stegner hmm. i wondered that is, too is jaber wendell berry i mean yes and no right is hickleberry finn mark twain is coke pepsi <laughs> wow <laughs> graham asking the deep questions for today's show well and on in a stylistic sense i think that that whole paragraph about the doorbell works too and, you know, these great stylists kind of slow down time in order to let us know something important is about to happen, right? Here he's having this long reflection about doorbell, which tells us something about this character and also lets us know action is about to happen. A potential is about to be realized, right? This is a yep. significant, this is more than just ringing the doorbell. This, this is, is one of the unique things about happening. the novel. Yes. And it's the only kind of thing you can say when it's being told as a memory, right? Or you can say, this is about to be a significant moment in my life. Yes. Right. Pay attention. My, and then he, and that's one of the things I really liked is how many times he reflects and thus my life changed and I would never be the same. And this was the defining relationship of my life. And it's only the right. kind of thing you can say in retrospect. And then, of course, there's a line where he says, by February, she would look like a Mississippi tug, Mississippi River tug pushing a three by five toe. But right then in her crying <laughs> greeting, she looks simply tall, beautiful, exotic, and exuberant. My wife's pregnant. Maybe I should refer to her as looking like a Mississippi no, River tug. No, I think, I think not. I think absolutely not. Firm no. Firm Under no, no circumstances. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm aware. I'm, I'm aware. I'm, oh, and I know you, know you would never do that. And your wife looks adorable pregnant. <laughs> I just got to say that. She really does. Last time I saw her, I was like, you're so adorable. She said, I don't feel adorable. Side question. Do pregnant women ever feel adorable? No. Firm, no. That's another firm no. no. Yeah. There's only so many times you can run into a door frame because you have misjudged your size. <laughs> it just whittles away at the self-image. <laughs> um self-image is also a theme that's in this book Um, that was awesome so there's there's there is there's there's the way he sees the different characters and there's clearly the way they see each other and he's always trying to get at the way people are seeing each other he's and but that's true of all of us right so like when we're in relationships we're always trying to figure out like how does that person actually feel about me 
and like how how do how do those two people feel about each other and what are they really thinking and even during that whole dinner party scene right he, he's kind of aware of of how the that other couple is is sort of feeling right and he you know he's aware that charity and sid are trying to put on like the, how what they're trying to do to make everyone feel comfortable and um so i think the way people f- see themselves is something he's always trying to figure out in this book yes and he sees himself as an outsider because he comes from the west yep. and, and if i can i'd like to give a little bit of the context for what's going on because i was very excited to see these references of these professors because i have done a lot of research about this um, and have given not one but two cersei talks in which i have referenced a guy in this chapter so when they say when when larry fit? No, it's George Lyman Kittredge. And so when when Larry looks at these guys that came from Harvard and he says, you know, he's in awe of them. He says they have looked upon Kittredge Bear. Um, so what he's talking about. So that's George Lyman Kittredge. He was the very first chair of English literature at Harvard University, a chair created in his honor in the 1920s. George Lyman Kittredge essentially created the English literature canon and brought English, the study of English literature to the scholarly and academic world, where before this, it was, I mean, really, people thought he was throwing his life away because he wanted to study Chaucer and Shakespeare and Celtic mythology and fairy tales. Um, So he, so we don't think about English literature this way now, but at the time of this book, English literature is the cutting edge new thing. And these guys in this room are the first generation cutting edge English scholars. And that's why they're making references like no one studies classics anymore, right? Because English literature is the new thing. So they're new and they're excited and they're avant-garde and they're from the East, right? Harvard and Yale, that's where it came from. Larry's from the West. So I can't help but think this is some Stegner, um, you know, self-confessional stuff and his own personal struggles. So where... So this is this Western guy trying to enter this Eastern elitist, you know, scholarly world that he feels a little bit shut out from. Mm, yeah. And I do think he is trying to give voice, you know, to the West. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the, what goes along with what you're saying, the, um, the university of Wisconsin, Madison, um, people describe it as the Berkeley of the Midwest. Um, Midwesterners do. <laughs> no, well, one no I mean, do people know it's that? Got that reputation, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. It has, it has one of the best um, MFA programs in creative writing, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, My sister has a master's from there in Hebrew scholarship. Yes. Huh. Yeah. So in it is, it's like a, it's like a midsize or, or I guess in 1937, it was probably small, small, like progressive community. Mm-hmm. And it's super yeah. interesting and says a lot about the character of Sid and Charity that they kind of turn their back on that, right? They want to go to where the real people are and 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 <laughs> they want to break out of the elitism of their own education. <laughs> Which kind of makes it fit. I'm, I'm not saying this will be developed, but it makes it feel a little bit like they they Larry and Sally are a little bit of a project for Charity. Did anybody else feel like that? Like Like she's this upper crust elitist woman and she's going to take these two little orphans under her wing and make something of them like we see your potential but larry wants his potential to be seen i know it's you know works both ways one of my questions was whether or not um charity comes across as condescending Hmm. whether whether she's really charitable (laughs) right yeah i guess that's one way of putting it or or to what degree she's she's actually being charitable for actually for the sake of other people but again that goes back to like how people see themselves right 
Mm-hmm. Like what, to how we see ourselves is often sort of an aspirational thing, right? So, um, well, I think a lot of that is going to, again, I feel like I don't know these characters yet and I have to wait and see. Like, so if, you know, two chapters from now, we find out that before Sally showed up, Charity was horribly lonely and desperate for a friend, then I could believe that that was an instant kismet moment and, and it was a genuine friendship, right? Uh, so I just don't know. I don't know enough about Charity to know. He- Heidi, do you think that, she comes across as condescending? Um, I think condescending is a possible interpretation of what we know about her so far. Also, um, maybe like, like very young and earnest and possible like and arrogant. Yes. Like the way yeah. she talks with the, with the italics of the, you can tell she's, um, I know he describes her as vibrant. Yes. So I can't, uh, up to this point, I think the jury's out, but she has such a presence and people who have that kind of walk into a room and own it, various, the different people in the room have different interpretations of that, right? Some people find that Mm -hmm. delightful and some people find it overwhelming. And that's a good point. And so I think that that is, like I said, the jury's still out on that. What we do know is that Sid, I'm sorry, is that Larry and Sally are immediately drawn to her and interpret that part of her very charitably. They don't see it as arrogance. Right. And and I don't mean to suggest that I pick up on anything sinister about her. More right. like I just need more time to know, is this a pattern with her? Like every new couple, she's going to take them under her wing and make something of them. Or is she, you know, genuinely in search of a friend and finds one? Mm. Right. Right. Exactly. There is a, um, there is a sense that the way she interacts with people lacks some subtlety, like exactly. at the dinner party, oh, yeah. everybody yeah. at the dinner party knows that the guests of honor are actually like the party is actually to have Sally and Larry there. Um, mm-hmm. and they're just kind of there to, <laughs> to fill spots. I mean, it, he points out that other people were clearly picking up on that. So, um, you know, I, I think one of the themes that I'm, thinking is probably here that I've never thought about before is that like real self-awareness tends to come over time, right? Like we're, we become more self-aware the more we live and make mistakes and screw things up and notice things about ourselves. And that takes... Hopefully. Right, right. Hopefully. Right. If no, we're, exactly. if, if so we're we, in a healthy space. So we wonder then, was Larry Morgan really able to say about himself in the moment, I'm drawn to them because they like me, or is that the reflection of 34 years, right? Mm. Right. Yeah. Because that's, that's a very mature reflection. And it's probably something we can all ask ourselves, you know, how much are those mutual friendships because we feel liked? And so we like back. What, one of the things that he is very specific about... Not that that's wrong. That's part of it, right? Right, yeah. One of the things he's very specific about is what it felt like to be in the specific moment. Yes. So he's mm-hmm. very, very specific about that. Like at the end of chapter four... Um. Oh yeah, in the party, absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, can can friendship exist without that? Yeah. Without what? Without feel feeling liked. Right. Um, if it's not there, does it just become charity then? Right. Become a, a very no. Agreed. Agreed. I guess I'm I'm thinking particularly of when he talks about that he what he's drawn to is that she admired his work. That yeah, and from their aunt yeah. Yeah, so like, you know, she's somebody that's taking him seriously as a writer. And he, so he's excited about that. Well, but I think mm-hmm. that's, you know, and what you're saying, though, goes along with the Graham's question. I think that's a great question for the context of this book. 
like right. is friendship founded like and even just beyond like the formal elements but is just as a question to think about is friendship founded on a sense of feeling liked by someone what are the formal elements of friendship <laughs> well i actually think that's one of the things the book is exploring what is a friendship right sure is it when we sign that contract <laughs> my friends well, in our case it was that yeah. notarized <laughs> witnesses that, that's up for renewal soon <laughs> yeah there's yeah, always that escape clause. You can pay me to get lost. <laughs> We've been going on a series of one plus ones, one year contracts with a one year option to pick it up. Yeah. Uh, LeBron James style. But he, so at the end of chapter four, <laughs> the bonuses could be better. <laughs> you can say that again. Um, so uh, I did not read the fine print either where Graham put in there. I will have five close read appearances a year. Yeah. We're trying to get them in here. Um, so uh but going back to that idea that he's very explicit about how it felt. Um, I love that. That was my favorite scene in the whole book. That dinner party was brilliant. At the end of it, though, as they're all leaving, right, they go for this walk and it says all of us. Well, I'm going to step back here. They're talking. She's, you know, Sally said, or um, Charity says, before we're all done, let's make Madison a place of pilgrimage. And then it says she went on like that for blocks while Sid murmured and agreed and prompted and listened. She said a lot of things we might have thought or hoped, but would have been embarrassed to express, which that says a lot about her. Mm -hmm. Never in our lives had we felt so close to two people. Charity and Sally had their competitive pregnancies. We were all at the beginning of something. The future unrolled ahead of us like a white road under the moon. When we got back to their big lighted house, it seemed like our house too. In one evening, we had made it, made it at home in it. But then he says, all of us felt it. We must have. For in front of our gate, before we drove away, still wearing the burnooses, we fell into a four-ply, into a four-ply laughing hug. We were so glad to know one another and so glad that all the trillion chances in the universe had brought us to the same town and the same university at the same time. Yeah. Um, and it's not just, I don't know, there's something very specific to me about what he's doing there. He's constantly calling to mind a specific feeling in a specific time. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that's driving some of the momentum. Like, when one time at one scene after another, he's giving us the sense of what it felt like. And that, that sense of feeling is what makes it universal, right? Like we have not all been in a room like that with those exact people, but the feeling that comes of being in a room similar to that is a universal thing for almost all of us in some degree or another. And that's, right. there's something very human about that that drives the momentum of the book for us, I think. I agree completely, David. And I also think that, uh, one of the things that I'm already loving about this novel, especially with uh, what we were talking about earlier of Stegner and Barry together, is Barry explores this idea of given relationships, right? Like you're in the membership if you're in the same place. The place determines the membership. Whereas Stegner in this novel is exploring the impact on a life of chosen relationships, right? Like I choose you and... And with that, then we build a place. And that I think mm. is not necessarily different than what Barry is saying. It's the same exploration of the value of place without, of course, being wholly agrarian. Uh, but it displays that that sense of place is a transcendent idea that is connected to just as much to chosen relationships as given ones. Uh, yeah. And, and that's something we've discussed before with Hannah Coulter with the, you build the membership with the people that are there, but here we have, no, I'm choosing you and we're building something from that. And that's more consistent with my experience 
And I'm, I'm really excited about exploring that connected with the same sense of place in American literature. Yeah. And who knows why you end up running across someone and being given the option to choose them. Right. Like that's the, the trillion little chances that he's talking about there. Exactly. Yes. And there's a quick quote before we, there's a quick quote on page 36 says what the disorderly crave above everything is order and yeah. what the dislocated aspire to is location. Reading my way out of disaster in the Berkeley library, I had run into Henry Adams, who I've never read, by the way. Chaos, he told me, is the law of nature. Order is the dream of man. No one had ever put my life to me with such precision. Hmm. And then he kind of goes on and he says, I had lost my security and she never had any. Both of us were peculiarly susceptible to friendship. When the Langs opened their house and their hearts to us, we crept gratefully in. There's place and relationship chosen together. I and love I would that. even go back to the paragraph right before, because that connects with what I wanted to say about their search for home. We straggled into Madison, Western orphans, because I was thinking about that. Mm. This is two, two orphans, right? So you got the whole orphan motif of literature going behind that. Um, and the Langs adopted us into their numerous, rich, powerful, reassuring tribe. We wandered into their orderly Newtonian universe, a couple of asteroids, and they captured us with their gravitational pull and made moons of us and fixed us in orbit around themselves. Um, and I love that. Okay, so chapter one, we, we're in the present. Chapter two starts back in the past. But chapter There's a circle starts, again, orbit. Yeah, Another oh yes, circle. exactly. Circular time. Again, yep. so chapter two begins with the literal search for home. Two homeless people looking for home, worried that they might in fact be homeless if they can't find a home. Um, and then they find the home, but it's with people. Mm. It was just lovely. Yeah. I think in that metaphor, it also illustrates some of the danger of it, you you can't stay as a as a moon orbiting right somebody yes there's that sense of doom that or i have or trash yeah. like that <laughs> yeah. right yeah yes and, it, and yeah, if, exactly and it's difficult to honestly it's difficult right to stay kind of in in a healthy relationship with someone who insists on being orbited around right exactly yes and there's yes. A, in some ways there's a little bit of a sense that charity feels like she has to put people in orbit around her. Um, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. Well, she orders things. Uh, the, yeah. the dinner party scene with charity reminded me a lot of Mrs. Dalloway from Virginia Woolf's book. Um, there's that scene where she's having a dinner party and her function is to make sure that everybody else is having a good time. And, and so she's always ordering them and not ordering them in the sense of like giving an order, but like rightly ordering them, right. Creating a scenario in which uh, she's just always a, a little, a little plug, a little conversation starter here, a little drink and appetizer here. Right. And that's what we see charity doing. She's, she's watching, she's sensing what people need and she's trying to, to give it to them. She's the director. Right. Yeah. The coordinator, the conductor. So she is the gravitational center of that dinner party without being the center of attention. And one of the things I think worth looking out for is in what ways those dynamics play out in their relationships. Like that, in different scenarios, different settings, different worlds, that person who kind of is orbited around kind of has to change and evolve from, from space to space and time to time, right? Oh, I fully expect we're going to see an evolving relationship as they Maybe all... even a reversal? 
Possibly. I mean, it's interesting to think about that he's going to have to pull two things off. And again, this is not something I've experienced, but I mean, you guys have all experienced it, but I will say it as the novice of the group that he's going to have to both pull off their each individual growths and evolving. Right. And, but then they're evolving then as married couples and then as the pair of couples and the friends, that's got to be incredibly difficult. I don't know how people sustain lifelong couple friends. Hmm. That just seems really hard. Hmm. Yeah. What if your kids don't like each other? That throws man, that throws a wrench right there. Well, as you know, Graham and our friendships on the ropes now with our contracts ending. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah. See, professional jealousies getting in the way here. (laughs) I I love the concept of the circle, though. How it plays itself out with people, right? Because like, if you're sitting around, you know, like, I mean, I know four people. Typically, you're gonna think of a square, right? But if you think of like four people, I don't know if you, this is kind of silly. In a group hug. In a group, in a group hug. hug. That's what I was thinking too. Or like four hug. people who are standing there like holding hands or something. Like it's not a square, right? Not really. It's right. Like a, no. You know, put the people in relationship together and, you know, a square creates kind of like odds, right? Like um, you're sta- sides opposite, standing in opposition to each other. Whereas a circle is the concept of, you know, all the elements of or all the the lines of the circle working together to create a whole, right? Um, I'm, I'm to taking this shape thing in a very specific way, but I love the idea of it, like continually going around in circles and never ending. Right. Um, right. Which brings us to some final thoughts. Well, I, I think th- that he sets all of that up in chapter one with the idea of the circle of life. Like here we are again and she's dying and, and he's reflecting on the whole circle of their life. And then Mufasa lifts Simba up towards the sky. Uh, <laughs> let's go final thoughts. Um, Angelina, you go first final thoughts. Uh, I'm excited to see where this book is going to go. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And you guys should have told me he was dead. That was like a relief to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Stegner. Stegner's dead. I mean, as soon as I found that out, I was like, why didn't someone tell me this? Thank goodness. You didn't know Sid's actually dead. It's, I mean, I mean, Larry's actually dead. It's a, uh, he, he's a telling the, the story from beyond yeah, the grave. Yeah, this is Dante esque right here. Yeah, no. All right, uh, Graham, you go next. No, wait, that wasn't final thought, was it? What, what's that? What you don't you don't like her final thought? I'm four chapters into this book, Graham. I don't know what I can say. It's a final thought for today's episode. Well, is it your favorite book? <laughs> four chapters <laughs> in. Uh, this might be my favorite first four chapters I've ever read. Awesome. <laughs> Do you want to add anything? Uh, let Heidi go first. Oh, okay. Okay. Sure. Graham um, wants us I, to orbit around his moon. I see how this is going. I'm happy to. I'm happy to orbit around Graham. I think he is the bee's knees. Okay. So I. <laughs> how old are you? I'm, I'm old. I'm She's 87. Also got a purse full of hard candy <laughs> yeah. for you too. I mean, no, that's for Tim. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the bit of honey. Right. She's got some bit of honey for Tim right now. Exactly, exactly. Close re- hashtag close reads callback. <laughs> That's actually perfect segue to my final thought, which is the idea of the tension between permanence and change. Mm. Uh, in that first chapter, particularly, uh, that it's again that idea of circular time that we've been talking about in detail, and then the the idea of we wanted to change time, but time changed us. Right. And I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays out in this relationship and then in their careers, which as Angelina points out is a huge part of this book. So, um, permanence and change the tension between them. 
Uh, are you ready now? Heidi. <laughs> Is it your favorite book? <laughs> he really needs uh, to be. It needs to be somebody's it, favorite book. It's in the <laughs> running. Four chapters, chapters in. It's in the running. It's in oh, the running. Oh, so, so that you can at least have people tell people. Yeah, I need, I need an appeal to authority. This book so is for him like one, the apartment is for me in movies. That number one spot is nailed down by Bride's Head. Like that's not going to overturn Bride's Head, I don't think. But <laughs> I think that there's a place in the top five, potentially. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, Sweet. I mean, don't be greedy. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you this, Graham. I recommended it to somebody this week. There you go. That's that's like that's working its way up. Yep. If and then his response it. was, "My dad loves him. He went to Stanford." I was like, "Oh, oh. <laughs> there you go." And this guy thinks not so highly of his father. Then having oh, no, 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 he okay. does. He's just a classics guy. But I was so, like, "Come on, we can read life, people. Let's do it." <laughs> okay, so Graham, do you have a final thought then? Uh, not really. We went through all that. And then you. <laughs> <laughs> you- <laughs> You, the moon has eclipsed, and uh, I am in the dark. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you all are quite smart, and your brains work good. <laughs> wow! I feel like a butt is coming. Yes, but you're all idiots. This is the best book ever. I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he. You set him up way too well for that. Okay. No, you got. Uh, you guys are picking up on I think really important themes. And oh well, good. Um, as the Stegner Laureate of the world, <laughs> I approve the Stegner Laureate. So of the I'm world. right to predict that Larry will run off and join the circus. I'm dead on. I didn't hear that take. <laughs> that, was be- that must be before crisis. I came on. <laughs> this is not a Dickens novel. No, um, he sounds like a Stegner fundamentalist over yeah, there. Yeah. He's like, don't even say it. <laughs> How dare you? Um, I, I feel so protective of like the, in, I in love lo- that. No, in, I love that. Honestly, I do. I don't talk about this novel very much. No, I totally mm. I that's how I am about my favorite albums. I totally get that. They're yeah. sacred. I don't it, put it, them on in the car. If you're in me, I've turned the music off. Like, no, I don't know that you're worthy, and I just click it right off. You will drop like, in silence with me. <laughs> you like, the, I don't know if you deserve this album. I'm being dead serious. That's how weird I am. No, we we know. Yeah. We know you're being serious. <laughs> I, I I wanna keep the armor on because you take it off and somebody tells you all the reasons that they don't like him or, or i have found nothing like, to uh, criticize about this novel yeah if you take your armor off you're liable to get stabbed in the gut um mm-hmm. it's like never get a never get a will right as soon as you get a will you're gonna die makes it harder to do four-way hug though yeah that's true the armor. it's hard to lift <laughs> your arms we could have a four-way hug right now a virtual one yeah this is, sweet. <laughs> this is a sweet moment okay i'm gonna add my final thought um the awkward silence of response of David and Graham to my suggestion that we have a pretend virtual hug has really deeply hurt my feelings. <laughs> no, we Heidi could analyze that pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so I just want to add this, that I love one of the things he does where he'll drop these words that mean a lot of different things, which is what great authors do, but then he kind of leaves them hanging. So when, um, when we meet Charity for the first time, Larry's arriving home from work and he walks into their little basement apartment and he thinks Sally's sitting in the dark, right? Um, And he says, I stood blinking in the doorway. Excuse me, I said, I didn't know we had company. Don't call me company, the visitor said. I didn't come over to be company. And then that's kind of the last time he uses that word. But I am super into the way he uses the word company there. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Huh. I do Wait, have a last thought. Do you not? Do you <laughs> in North Carolina, 
we call it company in Louisiana. No, we do too. But I think you can think about that word in a lot of different ways for that yeah. scene there. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, <clears throat> I, I had a final thought. This is my last thought. And then I'm going to have a uh, penultimate to my uh, final thought. And then an anti penultimate. Yes. Uh, you can get this book by the Franklin Library, a first edition signed copy. Uh, they are to be had for under $50. Really? Yeah. Do you have one? I do not. No, I was just looking at them. Um, are you, you asking know, people to send it to you? <laughs> I did. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, would have been a good plan. He's one of the authors who is like kind of renowned in the American canon that not a lot of people know about. It, which seems like a contradiction, but if you if you just read some of the things um, other well-known writers or critics have talked about him, uh, you'll see that. But since there's not a huge demand, uh, Franklin put out this like um, gorgeous copy, probably in '87, right, first edition, um, and and he signed a bunch of them, and so they mm -hmm. are to be had. So go get one if you love this book, I guess, and then maybe it'll be worth sixty dollars in years. <laughs> I want you to come back at the end, Graham, so I can give an actual opinion. I, you know, I, I take books as a whole. It's so hard when we're just starting out. I don't have enough information to, to say. It's all speculation, right? Angelina, I'm never going to leave. Okay, all right. Right you know, on. It is worth noting, though. Like You whispered that very creepily, and I will yeah. be looking under my bed tonight. But um. Graham, Graham's right, though, in that he he has a reputation among, like, the literati more than he does perhaps um, among average readers, except people who read his students. So like among the students that Wendell Berry right. taught at Stanford are these names. This is like a who's who Wendell Berry, Charles Dickens, Sandra Day O'Connor, Edward Abbey, um, Ernest Ro Gaines, Robert Stain, Robert Stone, Ernest Gaines, Larry McMurtry, Ken Casey, Gordon Lish, um, uh, George Higgins. I mean, there's just a lot of people that he, uh, that, that he brought along and that he influenced and who propelled the, some of the biggest names in, you know, the second half of the 20th century of American literature. So, um, yeah, he, I'm, I know. And, and Ernest Gaines was the writer in residence at my college. I have had numerous conversations with Ernest Gaines at the post office. Okay. I, I mean, had no idea he was Wendell Berry's classmate. If yeah. only I could like go back in time, and just tackle him all weird in the post office. Like, tell me about Wendell Berry and just, yeah. Like he would never have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I honestly, if you were attacking someone in a post office, I'm pretty sure they would see it coming. Um, all right, I did let's, ask him to sign books every time I ran into him. It was weird. I just always had one of his books in my backpack. So I, like, I, I was like this weird stalker girl. Every time he turned around, sign another book. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, I think we should call it a day. Um, just the just the image of Angelina tackling Ernest Gaines in a post office while asking for a book. I think is a good place to end. So for for Angelina, the Ernest Gaines stalker, Stanford, for Heidi White, for Graham Pittman, uh, for all of us here at the Sosi Institute, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening to Close Reads here on the new Close Reads Podcast Network. We'll talk to you next time and happy reading.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.